Well, hello, everyone. I am so excited to welcome you to a very special TFC Connections today with some incredible experts on a number of issues related to cotton, a beautiful material, one of my absolute favorite materials, but certainly has a lot of complexities in the past and in the present. So we're very lucky to have this fantastic group of people here today to talk about cotton, a spinning supply chain to increase our understanding and raise consciousness um, and, and bring together just a, a diverse group of stakeholders in this space. So wanted to turn it over to Wendy. Thank you so much, Wendy, for assembling this wonderful group today. Wendy, I'll let you share a little bit more okay. about your background and introduce the panelists. Great, thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you so much for hosting us today. Um, uh, this is a great, uh, a great topic. And um, yeah, my name is Wendy, Wendy Blancier, and I've been working on like human rights and labor rights and supply chains for about 20 years um, in various supply chains and, and the last a lot on the agricultural um, supply chain. So um, really, really interested in, in going all the way, you know, in seeing the labor rights and human rights are adhered to throughout the entire supply chain, including at the, the production level. And, and that and that includes cotton. So I uh, thank you so much, Wendy. Yeah, yeah. So so much. Yes, yeah, so I'm so happy to um, to be here today and to introduce our three panelists um, that, that we have today with us. Um, I have. Uh, we have. First of all, well, we have three. We have <laughs> we have Patricia, Jurowitz, uh, Eric, Henry, and Layla. Shad. Shamshayeva, is that right? I might be pronouncing your name right, but um, all three, all fine. Okay, Shamshiva. Thank you, Leila. Shamshiva. Thank you so much. Yeah. So yeah. So Patricia, I I've worked with a little bit. Um, I've worked with a little bit on her. Yes, yes, a yarn ethically sustainable source. Um, she which is Y E S S. Y E S S. That's right, and it's based on the OECD due diligence framework um, for for specifically in the, uh, the cotton and the spinning supply chain. So it's very I'm very excited to uh, introduce Patricia. She's who's the founder and CEO of the Responsible Sourcing Network, and and she has been working in this field for uh, for a, a long time. Championing champ, she's a champion for human rights in the mining and harvesting of raw materials in the products that we use every day, such as clothes and, and the mining products. Um, she is the co also the co-founder of the Cotton Campaign and helped encourage the transition of Uzbekistan away from forced labor through brand engagement and multi-stakeholder advocacy, which was a, was a very big feat. So welcome, um, welcome, Patricia. Thank you. Yeah, and Eric, um, Eric, I met just a few months ago uh, in North Carolina. Er Eric. Um, at his production facility in North Carolina, he he is started the TS Design, is one of the which is which is on the cutting edge of producing sustainably sourced T-shirts in the United States. States, and you know we will hear a lot more from him about that. But um, some of the work that he is doing in the cotton uh, supply chain um, and in, and in manufacturing T-shirts is very, very exciting. And of course, last but not least, with Layla, she joins us from the Better Cot Initiative, um, where she leads the where she leads their decent work initiative to improve the working conditions in cotton farming. Um, she is a passion. I know her as a passionate advocate on the subject of labor rights and creating better working conditions 
and global supply chains. Thank you so much for joining us today, Layla. <laughs> Great to be here. Yeah, so just let's just uh, to, to start, I guess we'll just uh, do a general introduction to the topic, talking about maybe I'm going to ask everybody about some the key concepts and topics around human rights due diligence in fashion, and maybe each of you can um, can define what this means to you and give an example. Uh, you know, I guess we could start we could start with with Patricia. Um, yeah, around transparency. What does transparency across the, the entire supply chain, including and beyond tier one? Uh, maybe you could define that for us a little bit, Patricia, and what it means to you. Sure. Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, there's a lot there. There's due diligence, there's transparency, there's the entire um, supply chain, which can be somewhat complicated and complex. But I like to try to break it down in kind of simple terms um, around due diligence, which is identifying, assessing, and then addressing harm. Um, that type of harm could be any kind of harm. It could be environmental, labor, human rights. A lot of times labor and, and human rights, um, labor rights and human rights go together. Um, looking at, you know, we've heard child labor, forced labor, but there's a whole lot around decent work and non-discrimination and, you know, making sure that people are uh, treated appropriately while they're working. And sometimes that does get a little more um, abusive toward really that um, aspect around forced labor, which does fall into more of the uh, human rights um, definition. But uh, there's, there's a variety of, of harm that does happen uh, inside factory working conditions, and I was focused on that for a while. I worked at a brand for a while. I've also worked in, in the field uh, with uh, grassroots at level with uh, women's cooperatives, textile and art artisan cooperatives. And um, looking at, you know, what's going on with the workers who maybe are in those middle tiers of the supply chain or then even, you know, further upstream. And for me, upstream, I think closer to the field or, or a water source is how are people treated in fields? And even if you have the, you know, brands who are really committed to making sure they have ethically produced product, they may not know. I mean, brands don't buy cotton. They don't buy yarn. They typically don't buy cloth. They're buying a finished good. And so there's a lot of potentially hidden risks and hidden harm that goes on. And I'm, I know we'll dig into that, but that's where the yeah. transparency piece comes then is really knowing what's going on because yeah. If you don't, if you can't see it, then it's hard to actually measure or assess if that harm is happening. So that's the importance of the transparency piece. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And maybe I'll ask, you know, you, Eric, as, as somebody who's, who's coming from more, um, you know, production side and manufacturing, what, what due diligence, you know, how you define due diligence and what it means, you know, what it, what it means to you. And if you have an example for us. Thank you. Well, I want to go back and touch on transparency because that is definitely uh -huh. the core of what we've been doing, God, for over 15 or 16 years. And also, we're very fortunate that we live in North Carolina, the intersection of agriculture and apparel. So we're able to have a supply chain that we define dirt to shirt connected all in North Carolina. Uh, but I think we cannot move forward with the conversation through the broken apparel industry till we 
demand transparency. And, you know, this thing, the internet, I started a business before there was an internet. We got this great tool out there, but it's, to me, it is the, uh, thing that we need most important in the apparel industry is demand transparency. I know we live in a global economy. We're not going to put that genie back in the bottle, but the brands continue to drag their feet on, uh, not having access to transparency. And, uh, and again, I just want to know that facility that's in Bangladesh or it's in India or China. I don't care where it is on this, hopefully on the planet, but just give me the access. And we just believe it starts with a, a contact of the facility or the, the place it's coming from a picture phone number physical address i mean it's not that hard but i see very few brands doing that work of other than just spinning the word transparency like we spin the word sustainability and um but i think it starts with transparency and demanding that and hopefully in time both consumer and regulations will catch up and that will you know we move beyond just made in a country and give us that information Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, and uh, Layla, kind of thinking about your work, maybe you could you could touch on due diligence if, if that, you know, that works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's better cotton. That's the interesting part that I probably should mention from the start. We don't do a supply chain due diligence. What we do is we work at farm level with the farmers, with the farm workers, with the farming communities to advance, to promote responsible farming practices. So we are always at the other end. Um, Tricia mentioned importance of transparency to know what's going on, to be able to do something about it. We're already there. We are already at farm level, engaging very closely with farming communities, trying to understand what's wrong and trying to support them to improve this um, by addressing the, the, the very much the risk factors and the underlying structural issues that lead to the labor rights risk, to human rights risk. Absolutely. So what does risk assessment uh, mitigation uh, mean to mean to you or somebody from Cotton and the work that you do? It's a very good question. It, because the issue, the decent work challenges in agriculture are so vast and in Cotton in particular as well, they're so enormous, you really need to take a risk-based approach. So what we do is we try to understand what the risks, the risks are based on who works in the, in the farms, what are their characteristics, whether it's dem- demographics or social characteristics, how are they employed, how, whether they're recruited directly or indirectly, have they been charged recruitment fees? Uh, what do they do in terms of the um, activities and tasks? Are they exposed to pesticide risk, you know, the risk of pesticide poisoning and so on? We're trying to map those risks and take a very sort of risk-based approach in mitigating them and then encourage our producers to monitor the effectiveness of those mitigation measures. So that is the, the core of what we're doing and the risk-based approach that we take. Great. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, I, that, that, I think that all, that's all very helpful. I think that, you know, Rebecca, maybe we could talk about a little bit about, move on a little bit to talk a little bit about yeah. standards. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because this has been a big hot topic, not just in the sustainable fashion space, but with, with a New York Times article, which we'll touch on for a second. So 
you know, coming from a legal background, I, I love to define terms. I really appreciate everyone like doing a deep dive into like what these terms mean for them and how they relate to their work. So just want to see maybe, um, Patricia, I'll start with you. How would you define a certification, a standard, and then where do audits come in to play here? Um, good question. And, you know, a lot of people use the word certification all the time. Um, Layla will tell you that BCI doesn't do certifications, they license. And, you know, so there are... Yeah, these words are important. Yeah, you want to end up with certification or, and then maybe Layla sh chime in and share um, what the term license means too. Um, but, um, and, and we do see a lot of certifications around specific products. So certified fair trade, for example, or organic, um, and they do have specific standards and requirements. So standard, you know, usually lays out what, uh, requirements need to be met. And then if it meets those requirements, then you could say that that's certified. Uh, I, I think it is more easy and it's easier to do with um, products rather than uh, facilities or supply chains. Um, there are various, you know, standards which, again, lay out those requirements for chain of custody uh, aspects that need to be met. Um, we're looking with the YES standard, which is also standard, and there's an international standard um, body called ICL, which tries to lay out if folks are coming up with a new standard, how do you do that in a, a way that's uh, neutral, you know, it's not biased, and that it is going to work for the industry, that it doesn't um, harm one group or another, and how do you, you know, you do public consultation to make sure you're giving people a chance to weigh in on things. So they have kind of uh, overall um, concepts of, of creating new standards. With our YES initiative, we um, are saying that uh, groups, that in particular a facility, so a spinning mill or a fabric mill, would be conformant with a standard. Uh, and that means that, yes, you're meeting these. A lot of it is around uh, management systems, for example, meaning you have the, the procedures and processes in place um, to, to manage your inventories and, and look at your own risk, address that risk. But it's not saying that it's a perfect, that, that everything's perfect and that there's absolutely no forced labor in your supply chain, for example, because... We're, you know, we're not there all the time overlooking that whole thing. And it, it is complex. What you want to do is put correct systems in place and then say, yes, we're meeting those systems. And ideally, those systems will help us know that we're sourcing an ethical product. But, you know, nothing's a guarantee. And I think certifications are more around something that's more concrete and more kind of a guarantee versus... Um, conformance, which is what we're looking at, or I'll, I'll turn it over to Layla now to talk about licensing. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Patricia. It's a, it's a good um, introduction that you gave there. Uh, Better Cotton is a standard, and we are a farm-level standard. Um, that means that we verify farming practices against our standards, and then we define a continuous improvement um, as a pathway to drive this constant um, improvement of uh, against the against our standard, for some farmers, 
it can be one thing and for others it will be another thing. The most important thing is that we drive this continuous improvement where it is most urgently needed. So it can be pesticide use for some, water use for others, and labor rights for, for someone else or child labor specifically for, for another one. We do not certify the cotton itself. The farmer gets the license to produce so-called better cotton. And then this better cotton is sold on the on the market. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing about that. I think Patricia, you made a good point. Like these terms are sometimes used, like they're synonyms, synonyms or the term certification might be used all the time. There are real and important differences here. I wanted to turn to um, one of the challenges in this space. So I'd love to get some of your thoughts on this, Eric, and of course, any others who want to chime in. So for example, the Rana Plaza factory, it was a certified factory. It had been audited. Um, and then kind of breaking things back into the cotton level, there was a New York Times article that came out about the global organic textile standard about cotton that had been certified by that standard about whether or not it's fake or there's fake certificates being issued there. Um, in that article, it noted that Eileen Fisher was moving away from talking about certified organic. So Eric, just would, would love to get your thoughts on anything that, that you want to that you want to bring into the conversation as someone who is who is a practitioner who's in the space of creating product and the importance of certifications, the importance of standards, and then some of the, the challenges that have been in the media as well. Yes. And while I'm a big supporter of certifications, I am concerned, and there's so many certifications out there that I, I find I, it. There, there, are, I think there are hundreds that relate to just the fashion industry. Absolutely. But the problem that, the problem I have with certifications, it forces people into silos. And then what happens without full transparency of the overall impact, people use one thing in leverage. And a perfect example of that is uh, we work with the cotton farm in North Carolina, about 60 miles from TS Designs. It is conventional GMO cotton. There is no organic cotton grown anywhere thousands of miles from here. We keep trying. We're not there yet. While I will have brands that says we will only buy certified organic cotton. So they would actually import organic cotton from overseas sources. And all I get is a piece of paper that tells me it's organic. I have no connection to the farm, the gin, the spin, or anything. But they would go to getting that cotton compared to this cotton. And I can drive them down and meet the cotton farmer. Yes, it's GMO, but they do no-till. They do cover crop. Um, so I think sometimes certifications force us into silos and that's why we're looking at and i'm also hoping to learn from this group today we like the model cradle to cradle that takes more of a broad base approach of the impact and not just you know drilling down to one specific another example there was a, a brand i'll leave the name out but they came out with this carbon negative hoodie sweatshirt great job whatever 100 percent recycled polyester shedded microplastics like crazy now again they weren't misleading they just didn't bring that topic up about microplastics but boy they advertised the heck out of the the carbon negative yeah, of the such product. important points eric oh yeah God. yeah and then and then you have yeah. the consumer who's trying to navigate this this whole thing exactly well um and yep. patricia i know that you wanted to, to share a thought as well yeah, I think what can also happen with um, certifications is if they're reg. I mean, if there's a really heavy hand there, 
Um, it will force folks to to falsify or or to lie, right? If it if kind of the bar is too high to meet off the get go, um, or if the um, benefits of being certified are are really um, have huge incentives and especially profit incentives. So I think that's what happened with the organic is. Organic gets, you know, you get a price premium for organic. And so as a result, folks want to sell their product as as, um, as organic so that they could get that higher price um, without actually doing the work for it. But you have heard of also issues where maybe the auditors aren't as um, honest as they could be if they're getting paid off by folks or if there's yeah, there are a lot double books, software, exactly. But, it, you know, so I think we need to think what's motivating them. One, our price is too low, especially in the middle of the supply chain, giving them reason to want to yes. falsify. The other is, you know, and, and Layla talked about continuous improvement. How do we encourage and empower and enable folks, especially suppliers that are a bit more hidden in the whole scheme of things, um, to do the right thing? And so I think, you know, and is will certification get us there? Um, I think we need to look at what the different incentives are, whether that's, you know, whether that's actually a certification or not. That's absolutely, that's a great, those are great points, Patricia. I agree. The, the problems with certification, and you mentioned the aud auditing too. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of scheming that goes over, that, that, that happens. And in order, for, you know, in, in the name of, of passing an audit or being certified, right? Um, let's, um, let's move on to, uh, ask some individual questions, other individual questions for each of the panelists. Um, Layla, I'd like to start with you, um, that that's okay. Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, just, just looking at the BCI website, your website says that, says that BCI is the world's leading sustainably sustainability initiative for cotton. Can you tell us what, what that means and what makes BCI the leading cotton sustainability initiative? Well, thank you, Wendy. Um, as I explained that we are a, for better cotton, we as an organization, we essentially steward a farm level standard for sustainable cotton growth. Now our scope is monitoring for, for monitoring and influencing social and environmental performance is focused at a farm level only. We became the world's leading sustainability initiative for cotton um, because we, of course, we, we expanded our production um, and our programs quite fast thanks to using um, so-called mass balance system where essentially all the cotton that we produce, there is no um, price premium that we impose on our, on, on, on the better cotton, so-called better cotton. It, it goes out there and it competes with conventionally grown cotton. And the idea there is that it pushes out the conventionally produced cotton through increasing demand from the retailers and brands and the buyers and the cotton buyers. What else helps us expand and become that this, this leader is benchmarking and recognizing other cotton standards that operate in the same way that we do. So we benchmark against um, cotton made in Africa. We benchmark uh, BPM in Australia, in Abrap in Brazil, um, Israel's uh, national standard for cotton growth. And 
at row two in Greece. And that allowed us to take up about 20% of um, the global cotton production that is recognized as the 20% of global cotton is recognized as better cotton. And we wouldn't wow. have been there without without these sort of um, strategies. Our yeah, members, and especially, um, yeah, just a, a couple more words about um, the retailers and brands are our members, but we also have other members, other supply chain actors as members. Now, they play an, a very important role in helping scale the adoption of these sustainable practices promoted by our standard by creating that demand that I talked about for better cotton. So they make a commitment that we will only purchase better cotton or other sustainably sourced cotton, and that helps drive that um, adoption on the ground. The volume of cotton that they buy, they pay us, um, they pay better cotton a so-called volume-based fee, and that, um, every time they buy better cotton, and that funds the capacity strengthening work that we do for millions and millions of um, farmers and farm workers and, and, and keep this work going. That's how we get that impact that um, we're so keen to um, to achieve the sustainable impact. So yeah, um, we're, we're quite busy at Betacon. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and, that, and, that, and it's obvious that you really rely on some of that, that support from, from brands and others. I mean, you know, you're agriculture cotton is so far upstream in the supply chain that it's you know the, I, I mean I would imagine it's it's difficult because it's often overlooked uh you know and it's over it could be overlooked by it and not and brands might not invest invest in that how can how can brands and others out there like support more positive change on labor rights and agriculture it for like for, for better cotton for, for example what can they do yeah um I mean, responsible and sustainable sustainability-minded brands are—they do care. They do do really care where the uh, where the cotton comes from, and uh, and oftentimes, and especially at the moment, they talk a lot about regenerative agriculture and climate mitigation. These are huge, very prescient topics. But when it comes to labor issues, generally, it seems be more of a risk avoidance approach especially with the uh, more stringent uh, legislation around uh, human rights due diligence so they are all about avoid forced labor and and and, and they don't invest in my opinion enough um, to actually improve decent work and like improve working conditions for the um, at farm level so this my preference would be for to promote collaborative, continuous improvement focus uh, when it comes to um, labor rights at, at the ground level. And I would love to call everyone who listens to our podcast to do more for the farming communities. And I, as I said before, you know, the, the challenges are huge in, in agriculture and specifically in cotton production. I would love um, that um, a lot more investment is brought to that ground level, mm -hmm. including better pricing for, for, for the cotton produced by the farmers. It's all very important. Um, we are working to, to, to develop a traceability system. So mm -hmm. at, at the moment, we only operate as a mass balance. Um, so, you know, the, the cotton is just 
injected into the uh, market and off it goes its own way. And there's a growing demand from the retail and brands to, um, to, to put in a traceability system so that they know exactly how the cotton travels through the supply chain and where it comes from. And our system will launch uh, later this year, hopefully. And, and, and with that, I really hope that, uh, you know, it will bring the attention closer to um, where the cotton comes from, what are the challenges and how to, uh, how to address them. So the, the generic challenges of decent work in cotton will start to feel a little bit more real and personal for the retailers and brands. And in my opinion, the time for them to start um, acting and getting engaged is, is now. Absolutely. I mean, why, why do you think labor rights continue to be so prevalent in this sector? Um, yeah, in agriculture, but specifically in cotton farming, since that is what your focus is. Yeah, um, the, they are indeed absolutely fundamental uh, decent work challenges um, in agriculture generally. Agriculture is considered one of the most hazardous um, occupations and sectors out there, and cotton is not an exception. There are the work is largely informal for the people who work uh, in cotton and cultivate cotton. The work is largely informal. Um, generally, in agriculture, the work is often unregulated. There aren't enough um, laws and regulations governing the working conditions in cotton production and agriculture. Generally, um, the for cotton specifically, the margin, the profit margins for farmers are so low. Uh, that they are unable to provide uh, dignified working conditions for the workers that they hire. So when they're, uh, uh, many of our farmers are poor themselves, they are unable to offer anything more to the, those they work with. There's also, in, in cotton farming, the just geographically, the, the fields are so expansive that it's very difficult to provide any sort of oversight by the government. And oftentimes the labor inspectorates or other bodies are under-resourced to even try, right? So oh, as a result, we have this um, space where the uh, risk factors are many and oversight is very sparse, right? That's what, yeah. uh, that's what ends up meaning that uh, there's a lot of um, basically violations taking place that are un not addressed. Interesting. And thank you and that, so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. No, no, thank you so much. I was just going to say in that, and that, and the fact that it, like you said there, it's, it's far and often remote. It makes it, it makes it hard. It must make it hard to monitor and really understand what's happening. Yeah. Thank you so much, Layla, for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the same time that we, we are doing a lot, um, at farm level and we are seeing progress. Um, there, we're trying to address the structural problems, of course, but these, have to be done collaboratively. So in collaboration with other organizations out there with the support and the funding from, you know, retailers and brands in um, partnership with the government structures, it really is such a massive topic that you really need to pull together to, uh, to do anything about it. And we are seeing progress when we do that, right? When it comes to child labor, it's a massive issue in, in, in agriculture and in cotton production specifically. And we're working with our um, partners and producers to understand what is unacceptable and what is acceptable forms of work for, for, for young people. 
in order to, like, by equipping them with this knowledge, we're helping them prevent child labor. We build these uh, partnerships with uh, community-based organizations, with village councils, and other NGOs or civil society. And we're sort of moving the needle, um, helping to transition away from, like, this um, zero-tolerance approach to, to such massive issues as child labor and forced labor and instead focusing on what we can do together to m recognize those risks, to mitigate those risks, and to ensure that that mitigation is effective. Thank you That's so great. much, Leila. So yeah. yeah, for that overview and just talking about, like, this is so important and the reasons why things are just incredibly complicated and the, the margins, the issues around decent work and defining what decent work is, and I really appreciate the invitation to collaboration. That's really what we're about here at the Fashion Connections, having these conversations and having these collaborations where we can all come together. And Eric, I know you wanted to have a comment here and that I was going to move um, to Patricia to chat a little bit about yes. Yes, thank you. One thing I want to just point out to the audience that a lot of people are not aware of, and I think goes to the root of the problem with agriculture in general, it's called commodity agriculture where the marketplace dictates the price in which the farmer gets paid. That has driven the farmer to make a lot of uh, short-term decisions to stay in business. And, um, and getting the brands, what I'd say, to get out of your office, go to the field, make a commitment to the farmer, but make it a win-win. The brands cannot be the only one at the table making the money. And so if we want to fix some of the issues, not all the issues, but a lot of the issues around cotton is we've got to create these pathways for the farmers to make a, a living out of it. And having the opportunity to work with a cotton farmer now, 15 years, now the third generation, and not only they're dealing with somebody somewhere and determining what they get paid for the cotton. And I always like to tell the quick story is I was in the cotton field March of 2020, right before the spike of COVID. And we were in a trade war with China at that time. So China wasn't buying our cotton. Literally, I was watching our cotton farmer plant his cotton in the field, 25 cents under his cost, hoping for good oh, money, hoping for a higher price. And this is a cotton farmer does 3,000 acres, $5 million in debt. And I mean, the Bro. most important person at the table with a cotton farmer has no say so in the price in which they pay for their cotton and the only way we're going to break this model and this is true go to the grocery store your tomatoes your corn your beans the marketplace is telling the farmer what they're getting paid so go to your farmer's market and work directly with your for your vegetables but again we've got to get the brands and the one way i'll leave it with this is when you go out there and you buy that uh 40 t-shirt you might have you might have 50 to 75 cents. And that would be a good price for the cotton farmer in that cotton. So again, mm -hmm. we've got to educate the consumer what commodity agriculture is and then encourage the brands to work direct with the farmer to buy their cotton. Yeah, thank you. And I, you know, I like to just say it's true that that, that what you're saying happens in North Carolina and as much in Pakistan across the world in cotton. So it's, it's very, it's very important uh, to understand. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, I, I really kind of feeling three themes, I mean, many themes, but three core themes that are standing out to me is like the importance of relationships, which of course relates to transparency, authenticity, honesty, um, and then responsibility, just 
who has the responsibility. It's not just on the cotton farmer. It's on people. It's on systems. It's on governments. It's on brands. Absolutely. And then standards as well. And in light of that, I wanted to turn Patricia to share a little bit about YES, um, which the Responsible Sourcing Network started in 2016. And I'm sure that we could chat for a while about this. And there's a lot of information on the website. But I would love to hear almost on a more personal level, like what drove you to start this standard? How did you bring in OECD due diligence? And would love to also hear a little bit about some of the exciting things that are happening right now. I have been very excited about some of your work in Pakistan, for example. Hi, thanks, Rebecca. Um, So, you know, um, Wendy read our kind of our, our overall mission that we're really looking to address human rights and abuses and uh, forced labor in supply chains at that raw commodity level um, so that we can, you know, improve the lives of workers and, and benefit communities. And so the issue of uh, forced child labor in, in cotton production actually came to my attention back in about 2007, I would say, when I first started hearing about children being bussed out to cotton fields to pick cotton in Uzbekistan. And uh, learning more and more about that and that it was government orchestrated. It was passed down from old Soviet systems, but it was appalling to see <laughs> photos of seven, eight, nine, ten year olds in cotton fields uh, where they had quotas to meet every day, their whole class. I really struggle with those images. I have a six year old myself and I, I still see these photos and I think all the time. I mean, it is heartbreaking to the point of driving you to tears when you see these. It is. And unfortunately, there's still abuse that, you know, to that effect that goes on. I'm happy to say that after over a dozen years of campaigning um, and, and the great work of the cotton campaign in multi-stakeholder fashion using diplomacy and um, and even campaigning against brands to make sure that they did not have Uzbek cotton in their, in their products. And really the Uzbek um, activists who you know, put their lives on the line and some were jailed and, but the government's come around and they've actually, you know, they've privatized the industry. They've um, cracked down on abuse that's happening. It's not a perfect system yet, but it's, it's really, you know, it's not the systemic forced labor of children and adults that we were seeing before in Uzbekistan. So it really gives me hope, you know, that that change is possible. Um, you know, we're still seeing that in other places. Um, I mentioned, you know, that we're looking at at raw materials, you know, for a variety of products. So not just clothing, but also electronics and in mining and knowing that there's also a lot of abuse that happens um, or in, that's been happening in particular in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where you then also have militarization of the mines and, and lots of exploitation of, of people. And so um, the electronics industry had gotten together. A lot of that was motivated by legislation that was part of the Dodd-Frank Act passed in 2010, but it was uh, really around conflict mineral reporting and that that um, brands that we all know, the HPs and Apples and Intels, et cetera, all have to report to the Security and Exchange Commission about what they're doing and if and how they're implementing due diligence to ensure that they don't have conflict minerals in their products. 
or and so the that industry went and set up a whole system to um you know and, and they set up standards and looking at the smelters and refiners that they were also identifying and addressing risk in their own um in their own supply chains so that uh, effort has been quite successful. There's a lot more transparency. There's public lists of which smelters and refiners have gone through these programs. You can link to their policies and their due diligence reports online. And uh, we were part of helping to create that system. And now we're taking that model and applying it to the textile industry. And the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooper Cooperation and Development, kind of like a mini UN, has really taken the lead in putting out a variety of guidance documents about like, okay, you use this word due diligence, what exactly does that mean? Um, and going further in uh, trying to prevent and mitigate the risk, uh, you want to have grievance mechanisms for people to be able to bring forth if there's abuse happening, remediation, if, if indeed there was harm that happened. Um, and so we're, we use that framework from the OECD. They put out a, a guidelines for specifically for the apparel and footwear industry. And we incorporated that foundation um, is what we use for the YES standard. And now we're seeing a lot of um, mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence legislation coming out of Europe. You have due diligence requirements. Um, in the U.S. for importers, specifically who are importing product um, from the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in China. Um, and, you know, this is all coming. So brands are understanding, you know, transparency, yes, you need to know where it's coming from, but that's, that's not all. You want to actually try to fix the problem. You want to prevent it and, and mitigate it. Um, and that's what we really like is that it it leads toward impact on the ground. So it links up with, for example, what Layla was talking about with Better Cotton, that you're now giving an avenue to the brands who before didn't know where their cotton originated. It helps them understand where it's coming from and that all the actors at each tier of the supply chain can actually take responsibility for addressing their own risks. But it all does lead to collaboration because we're not going to be able to, to uh, ad address these big risks on their own. Um, we need to bring in the governments and local communities and NGOs and human rights defenders and brands and, and really get, uh, give people the tools they need uh, and so that they could you know, address the problems that exist. That's fantastic, Patricia. And I would love to hear just a little bit and then when I move to Eric about what's been going on in Pakistan, as well as any other achievements or things that are coming up that you want to talk about. So I think it's, you know, it's, you really, you haven't been doing this for all that long, and there's been a lot of impact made. Thanks. Well, it's, it's been a haul, that's for sure. It's in double standard. Yeah, some of the, the forced labor pieces related to, like, Ulpa, for example, and I was, you know, ecstatic when that passed with around forced labor and the Uyghur population, but you know, you, you're in the trenches and it doesn't always seem like you're going to get there. So I know that too. Lots of tenacity. That's for sure. You know, it is a marathon, not a sprint. And so that's what we have to keep in mind. Uh, but we, um, you know, with some supportive brands and the U S government and some foundations, we've been able to uh, develop the standards, pilot them, you know, 
get that public comment to them, uh, and we released them last fall. And then in Pakistan and India, we were able to start implementing them with third-party auditors. And I know we talked about some of the challenges with the around auditing, but at the same time, we need eyes and ears on the ground and in the facilities. Uh, and so I do believe that auditors have a really important role to play, but they also need tools and resources, and they need to understand oh, you know, that due diligence is different than a social compliance audit because it's, it's looking at um, what the procedures are in place that the, that the manufacturer has and giving them feedback on how they could be improved. Uh, you know, and I think the manufacturers I've talked to, the, the fabric and, and yarn spinning mills, they want to do the right thing, but they, they're also, you know, they're not human rights experts. They, you know, they need resources so that they could build capacity with their own suppliers or what kind of language should they have in their contracts or when they're analyzing who their suppliers are. And so we've also done a bit of work and I think a lot more resources need to go into actually educating um, and training auditors on how to have these types of, of conversations. And you're not hitting them over the head. You're, you're there to support the mills in doing the right thing and support the auditors in, in knowing how to have those types of conversations. And so we did launch our first, um, yes, independent assessments in Pakistan in February with those independent um, third-party auditors. And we also, just in May, um, also hosted uh, our first workshop, and we also did workshops in Pakistan, but our first workshop in India and uh, first independent assessments in India are, yeah. So, you know, right now, the Responsible Minerals Initiative, I think they have, you know, hundreds of of uh, refiners and smelters and, and like 400 brands that support them. You know, we're, we're just, but they're 10 years ahead of us, but that's kind of where we hope to go. It's a global standard. So the idea is that the manufacturer will only have to go through one assessment. They're not going to have to do something different for every single brand. Um, and that we work together as an industry to, uh, to to really educate people, build that capacity, have the annual assessments, give feedback on how to improve, and uh, then collaborate on that risk mitigation on the ground. So that's where we're at. So we've just started in Pakistan and India, but our intention over the next several years would be to expand to every major um, global sourcing hub uh, specifically for fabric and yarn. That is that is so exciting, Patricia. Thank you so much and um, for sharing about that and excited to support there. Wanted to turn now to Eric. Um, so we'll go from Pakistan to North Carolina, which is my home state as well. And Eric would love to hear some about how you have developed your supply chain or, or partnerships, like kind of how have you put the pieces together? And then how do you communicate that to consumers? Because Consumers are becoming more aware of a lot of these topics around labor issues. And there's a lot of data out there that shows that consumers are very interested in topics about sustainability, but there's often gaps in terms of that interest and making it at a practical reality for their choices. 
Well, thank you. And as I mentioned earlier, um, being in North Carolina, and this is just the luck of life, is that we're at the intersection of agriculture and apparel. So we have the resources all within our community. But it's what happened on January 1, 1994, when my business that we built over 120 employees working for the brands, Tommy, Nike, Gap, Polo, et cetera, uh, very successful business, just moved into a 20,000 square foot building. NAFTA's passed. Two years later, I'm watching that 120 people go to about 12. The brands could not get overseas quick enough. And at that time, the thinking was, well, we'll just, you know, outsource these lower income jobs and we'll have better jobs here. But even then, I thought there's something wrong with this picture. We're going somewhere else to make a product, only to bring it back here to sell it. Somebody just laid off. So we decided not to participate, stay focused here locally obviously very aware of the global marketplace. And um, so we started building that supply chain, which we call Cotton of the Carolinas. And so when you start talking about transparency and uh, carbon footprint stuff like in the mid-90s, people thought like you had, you know, three eyes or four years or something like that because the focus, again, <laughs> being, the, being the older guy in the room here, it was all about, oh, I can buy more stuff. Well, we understand what buy more stuff has gotten us to where we are today. Unfortunately, the apparel industry is taking advantage of that in generally, and there's some brands doing better than others, but they have pretty much given a, a free check uh, to maximize their bottom lines while basically pushing aside environmental and social impact. Well, that bill's coming due. It's coming due to the consumers changing and being aware. It's coming due to regulations more in Europe than the U.S., but, but the global model was broken. Um, and while we understand we live in a global marketplace, uh, we need to understand the impact it's having, i.e. we call it the negative external cost. We need to start measuring those costs. And that's always been our biggest challenge, too, with the Cotton of Carolinas. And it's, it's an easier conversation. But again, going back to the, the late to mid-90s, people said, oh, my gosh, your T-shirts just cost so much more. And I said, no, it's not really our T-shirt costs so much more. It's really what you're paying doesn't cost enough. Uh, we ought to say it, too. Yeah, well, thank you. Said it, it's subs like the the um the garment industry in this country has always been subsidized by taking yeah. advantage of people from like the founding of our country to slavery and cotton. So we're used to these low prices, but that's not the true cost. And, and we in the the metrics, you know, we 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 still live in a a single bottom line focus, especially if you're a public traded company, you're focused on next quarter's profits. So you're, you're chasing those pennies around the world. So, you know, we've got to find better models. As I like to say, we will compete with anybody in the world. You just can't bring price to the table. If you're just going to bring price, you win. I'm not showing up. But if you're bringing price, which we got to bring ours to, let's have that discussion. And let's talk about, you know, what our costs are and how can we bring well, Again, we're always, just, you know, minimizing our waste, maximizing our efficiencies, uh, and be as cost-based as possible cost as competitive as possible but again it's but again i think at least we're having the com i mean the conversation we're having today would not have happened 10 or 15 years ago um and so now we're at least having the conversations and again we're not going to fix this overnight there's not one solution that will fix what we've got going on it will take a lot of people doing a lot of work to address this but again and again the thing that we're excited about and again, having the opportunity at the intersection of agriculture and apparel is we envision apparel manufacturing clusters 
And so regional areas that manufacture, instead of this global chase of craziness, literally North Carolina cotton, last I checked, 80% of this cotton would grow here in North Carolina, leaves this country. And in case of a t-shirt, that t-shirt will be, or that travel 13 to 15,000 miles to end up back in your local big box store. That is broken in so many different ways. And so what we need to do is how do we utilize these clusters of apparel manufacturing around the world instead of having, you know, uh, great cotton one place shipped to another place. And then that just invites um, other issues of lack of transparency. And somebody mentioned earlier their idea of, you know, sometimes looking at ways to cheat or cut corners and stuff like that. But when you have these regional models, and that's the exciting thing that we're able to do, literally can get somebody in a car and in one day we can see our complete supply chain from the farmer to the finished product. And again, we're not perfect. I mean, there's always room for improvement. But the thing I can rest well at night is there's not going to be any secrets of something that's in a closet, especially when you, and again, one thing I will end with this that we learned with COVID is, uh, which impacted our business a lot too, but use that same model. And we basically made t-shirts, we took, made masks using irregular t-shirts, but we did it here in our community. So what able to do, you're able to be agile, flexible, transparent, and we need to start thinking about how we do in that apparel industry. Again, we're not going to move away from that global model, but there's a lot more opportunities we can do in these regional areas that uh, where apparel's manufactured. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Eric. It's really inspiring what, what you're doing and how you are um, able to put the pieces together and be an innovator and thinking about like what the vision is. I mean, I think about the Fabric Act and which is going to be reintroduced in September and what is the model for American production? So I've also had the idea of having these hubs and like in North Carolina, for example, you have, you know, a great amount of growing cotton and then you have a place like NC State University, which is so involved in textile and HR. So just, um, this because we're, there's, oh my gosh, there's so much that I'd love to chat with you all about, but want to, just hand it over to Wendy to wrap up. But I know that everyone's information is posted on the page. So if you want to learn more or reach out or connect, um, I just, I so appreciate this conversation today. And I know that I've learned a lot and I, I love that we learn from each other. Yes, absolutely, Rebecca. Thank you so much. I mean, you guys all bring so much, bring so much uh, to the table in these discussions. Um, I would just like to like wrap it up maybe by asking, you know, like, one you know one more question i don't know I, I mean i would really like to see you know know from from the panelists what you know what you would like to see from ha- happening in this, in this sector in the next five years um you know what what are what are the what are the main things that you would like really like to see changes you would like to see to happen um in you know in terms of in in the fashion supply chain cotton supply chain in the next five years maybe a quick quick answer from from each of you and then we'll we'll, we'll wrap it up um, yeah, we can start with you, Patricia. Sure. Um, I think from the consumer perspective, I'd really like consumers to think twice about buying the cheapest product out there. I know there's, you know, I've heard of these hauls and uh, just super, super cheap clothing. As Eric said, that that cheap clothing really has a price. Um, and uh, I'll take one from Leila, who talked a lot about collaboration. I'd love for um, brands and retailers and 
uh, manufacturers all to join, yes. Um, we can't get this off the ground and really expand it globally without uh, support, both financial as well as uh, inc um, encouraging and supporting manufacturers to go through yes assessments. So I'd like to have them both support us and collaborate together to address the problems. And don't forget about the NGOs on the ground. I think that, you know, Having transparency is one thing, but to have real impact, we need to engage with local communities to make sure we're addressing the issues as they see them, not as we see them. Absolutely. And that's where we have, you know, now going to Layla, thinking about who's on the ground and really working in those communities. Layla, what, what would you like to see uh, in the next five years? I would agree here with, uh, with Eric. I would like to see the farmers getting a fair price with the cotton that they um, grow and cultivate with their sweat, blood, and tears, and so that they are able, in turn, to be the responsible employers for the workers, for the farm workers. And the by far the biggest and the most pervasive risk factor for, um, for, for labor rights violations, for human rights violations, is, is poverty, right? We need to start bringing a lot more resource here where it's needed the most. That's my two cents. Great, thank you so thank you so much for that. And and Eric, how about you? What would what was your what was your your like to see in the next five years? Two things uh, for the brand to connect and work directly with the farmer to break the backbone of commodity agriculture, and for the consumers, the brands you, you support, whatever brand that might be. Demand transparency. Do not get caught up in the pretty pictures of people standing in the field. Just say, I want access to your supply chain and trust me with those keys that you'll let me access and be a part of that. That's wonderful. Thank you all so much for for wonderful podcast. Thank you, Rebecca, for uh, for hosting us. I really, you know, I, I I'm hearing a lot a lot about the need for real collaboration among among all, you know, everybody. The, the you know the we have thought leaders, brands, uh, but we need to hear more from the farmers, and we want consumers to really demand transparency. I'm hearing I'm um, hearing that as a strong theme as well. Um, thank you everybody for the for the podcast for being on today, and I really appreciate your, uh, your all of your hard work in this sector. And look forward to being in touch. And everybody support support BCI, yes, and and um, and keep keep uh, you know abreast abreast of what TS Designs is doing as their their leader in this in this field as well. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you.